0: Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm honored to be here with a good friend of mine, Jordan, and his co-author, Chris, to talk about their new book, Union. And especially in this election year, where we're going to see a lot of conversations that are one side or the other on the political spectrum, Uh, these two gentlemen have done a remarkable thing by traveling the country together with differing political views and writing a book about their experiences and what they saw. So Jordan and Chris, thank you so much for being here tonight.
1: And it's a pleasure. Thanks for having us.
0: So I have to ask, how did you guys meet? What was the, uh, what was the moment you guys became friends?
1: Yeah, so uh, we, we met about four years ago. Uh, we were both uh, at Yale Law School at the time. I had started at Yale in 2014 after leaving the Marine Corps. Uh, Chris started a year after me, after leaving the State Department. And we met on a back patio. Someone introduced us. Uh, we felt like, you know... It would, it would be worth kind of having a longer conversation. So uh, we decided to, to meet for a beer and what was meant to be, you know, 40 minutes ended up turning into three hours. And we just had these great long conversations about uh, things that said, interested both of us. Um, and so we struck up this early friendship. Uh, but as the year headed into the presidential election into 2016, we found that uh, we just kept fighting like everyone kind of at that time, every conversation somehow turned back to Hillary and, in Trump. And we would often leave our conversations red in the face and, and angry at the other person. And uh, at the end of that year together, I had to be in LA for, for a summer job and my sister's wedding, and I decided to drive. And I one night I tapped Chris on the shoulder and said, hey, do you, do you want to go on a trip with me? And, and that was sort of the genesis of this book.
0: And Chris, what was your reaction when Jordan asked you to go with him after these red-faced uh, conversations? That you had? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, my initial reaction was that's a great idea, um, in large part because you know I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, my mother is a self-described uh, reformed hippie. Um, the idea of driving across the country was sort of rich uh, in my upbringing. You know, she drove across uh, multiple times in a VW camper, uh, living up to her title of, of hippie. Um, and uh, and so the idea was really kind of beguiling, but of course. You know, the idea of going with, with Jordan, who was, a, who was a good friend, um, was, was complicated uh, because we had started to get to know each other quite well. And, and we really, like, like Jordan said, we really, you know, had a lot in common. But, of course, politics had just become such uh, such, a, such a division point, such a, such a prominent reason to maybe not have conversations or not be friends at that point. Um, but, you know, uh, it, kind of the whole spirit of this project was, why not? And uh, that was kind of the first moment of, of why not for
0: me. So I, I want to get into the road trip here in a little bit, but maybe take us back to, to the experience at Yale. You know, my conception of Yale Law School especially is a place that might be very friendly to those left of center and maybe less friendly from those right of center. Could, could you describe your experiences on that campus, given your political beliefs and kind of what you saw and how you felt in those environments?
1: Yeah, sure. And I, I'm guessing we actually have slightly different takes on this given our, our political leanings. But, um, you know, Ben, you and I, I met at business school, which to me felt, um, you know, a little bit apathetic, uh, with regards to politics. Like if it it was talked about, you know, it was always talked about in, in kind of a, a mild way, um, Yale Law School was the complete opposite. It it was, uh, uh, hyper-political and every day the, the, the mass school email list was filled with, with emails about one issue or another. Anytime there was some big event in the country, there were flurries of emails, uh, uh, Take, taking out some position and, and challenging the other side. Um, so it was a very political environment. And I, I would say that um, the law school, Yale Law School, tends to be probably a little bit ahead of the country in debating issues. So a lot of the things that that are kind of front and center in the news today, like cancel culture and and debates over statues and um, Black Lives Matter, were things that were discussed back in 2015, 2016 at the law school. And I would say that the student body certainly slants left. Um, uh, it's probably like... Just ballpark estimate, 70% uh, left, maybe 20, 30% right. Um, And there's, uh, at least in my opinion, more tolerance for the left. Uh, The faculty is overwhelmingly liberal. I think there was one conservative faculty member while I was there. Um, And yet the conservative students are actually very powerful. The Federalist Society has a strong voice. Uh, The Federalist uh, uh, members, uh, the student members are um, pretty engaged and very vocal about what they believe. So um, while it's overwhelmingly liberal, the conservative voice is, is, is actually kind of powerful.
2: Yeah, I, I was pretty comfortable, um, you know, being, being sort of a, a left leaning type. Um, although I will say, you know, in, in, in while us uh, defense, you know, I, I, I had a chance to not only get to know Jordan, but, but a fair number of conservatives. And I think there are really these very few places left in our society that kind of draw people together from various different backgrounds very different uh you know philosophical or or political backgrounds and just let them sort of engage in new ways i mean i you know i know yale's reputation and of course there there is some sort of uh uh, self-segregation that goes on and and you know jordan is right that you know there does seem to be sort of a liberal Uh, a liberal tint to to much of the the scholarship uh, as far as I was able to surmise. But um, I was also quite pleased to see how often I was able to sort of engage with not just Jordan, but you know, but others and and who became very close friends despite our political differences um, on that campus.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's encouraging to hear. Uh, I think to Jordan's point, our business school campus was apathetic, but I definitely found myself in a lot of deep conversations with folks across the political spectrum. You know, it's interesting, Cato just came out with a a study that kind of talked about Americans' views and willingness to engage in conversation. And they found that self-professed, very liberal people felt the most comfortable sharing their views with a precipitous decline, uh, even amongst liberal and middle-of-road folks sharing their views in public or in, in, in workspaces. I'm curious, were there any topics at Yale that you found yourself self-censoring around because either you didn't want to engage on it or were just afraid of the reaction or what were some of the hot button topics that you yourself felt you couldn't be broached in those in that environment?
1: Yeah. So I I would say that I'm fairly pugilistic when it comes to politics. I, I like getting into debate, debates and uh, Chris knows that uh, I'll, I'll kind of take every opportunity to, to, Take a jab at him and, and see if we can get into an argument. Um, but I, I definitely felt like there were uh, a whole range of topics at Yale Law School that I, I just didn't even want to wade into because it wasn't worth it. Like the the uh, the chance of of me getting attacked with some kind of, of vicious label uh, was was pretty high. So if 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 it was in any kind of public setting, um, yeah, there's there's just a range of topics I wouldn't go anywhere near. And uh, I mean, it's everything from uh, even just talking about uh, like racial and, and, and gender issues, um, uh, to seemingly more mundane ones, like, uh, you know, police violence and, and, uh, gun control. Um, just cause, you know, in the public square at the school, it it could be, it could get pretty vicious and, and there were labels hurled, uh, like racist or sexist and that sort of thing that, um you know, it's, it's in a public setting, it, it could be very damaging to reputation. So I didn't go near it. It was only in, in kind of more private conversations with, with Chris or, or some of my other close friends that I, I felt comfortable uh, being more open about my beliefs.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would agree with Jordan that, that, that those public forums were, were often not the best place for, for dialogue. But I don't think that was an issue that really was sort of a, a cabin and at, at Yale, to be honest, I mean, I think that there's a lot going on in that time, and it's only become more uh, more so in that way. And that and that these issues are are charged, and they're 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 here, and they're they're relevant in our in our lives. But it, as a result, I didn't engage either because I just think that the, the temperatures are very high on public forums, and you know that actually is like one of our major lessons from the road. It's like when you can find sort of more intimate contexts, you can find one-on-one uh, situations, or you know, topic matters that that you can maybe find values that, that, that overlap before you dive into them. Um, you know, that's, that's a much better place
0: for dialogue. You know, Chris, that's a, that's a really good point. Something I've reflected on pretty extensively the past couple of years. Um, I took up a very close friendship with an African-American gentleman in our business school class. He and I have very different backgrounds, political beliefs, but there were threads of commonality and things we both cared about that was kind of an anchor for our relationship. And as I kind of see culture more broadly, you know, social media is a den of iniquity when it comes to conversations. And yet what we see now are these rise of like private networks where folks can go behind closed doors with, you know, five, 10, 15 people, not even necessarily of the same ilk, but can have these conversations. So I'd love to get your thoughts. And, you know, what have you all found to be effective in having hard conversations and building friendships across ideological divides?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I think the way you 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 teed it up is is exactly what Chris and I found, which is that the context really matters for this. You know, if if we find ourselves at a political rally and we're staring at someone who is you know either wearing a MAGA hat or uh, you know black face mask, um, it's going to be very hard to have any kind of dialogue. And obviously, that's like a dramatic example, but it, it shades from there. And any time we're in some setting that is not really conducive to pe- people feeling safe to share their views, knowing that whatever they do share uh, is going to be taken with some amount of good faith and that people will recognize that it's, you know, all of our thoughts are always works in progress. We're just trying to work out like what, you know, what is, what is true? What do we believe? Um, if you don't have that context, then, then it's, it's almost impossible to have constructive dialogues and, you know, Twitter or Facebook where, where people are posting social messages uh, or, or engaging in political kind of, disagreements um, are certainly not conducive like you're not even really a full person on on social media and so it's it's no surprise that it just devolves into pure chaos and so i think for for chris and i the the road itself was that different context when we got out on the road we were able to engage in a much different kind of conversation because we were away from our, our classmates we we didn't have people watching as we as we were um wrestling over various issues and road itself you know just is 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 um is a place where the noise turns down. You're able to have these longer discussions about deeper values, as opposed to just arguing about surface level policies or, or the personalities behind those policies. And, and so that, that was really fundamental for, for me and Chris. Um, we had a few other tactical lessons. Chris, uh, what would you wanna share?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another one of our, our major lessons was uh, uh, the importance of, you know, being able to really come back to the table to keep trying. Um, and that's one of those things that r- you really just don't get on social media. I mean, you know, it's it's so incremental, it's so one-off. Uh, you know, you only have so many characters, 100s you know, 280 characters, whatever it is at this point uh, on Twitter, um, and you just really can't do a long-term engagement with anyone really. And, and one of the beautiful things about being on the road was that we not only could, but we were forced to sort of keep coming back uh, over and over again. And so we would get in these big fights and then we'd realize, you know, we, in a moment of anger, we'd say, Oh, let's I don't want to be here. Let's get out of this car. But we're still, you know, 300 miles outside Reno, for example, uh, in, in a desert out in, of Nevada, and, and you just you can't leave. Um, and what that means is you start going through this sort of process, this healing process where you where you start to think, you know, uh, you go from anger to maybe I should have said something a little bit differently to maybe he had a point on that. And then you then you sort of have to start to reconcile after these long moments of silence. Um, and then you can go back at it and you can try again. And so, you know, we wrote union, um, the book to be messy and to show that, um, and that's something that we really were like forced into on the road, but it, it became one of these sort of critical lessons, uh, to, that we've cherished and carried on, um, you know, once we got off the road.
1: And w- one more quick thing I-, I would add is, um, over time, Chris and I developed our own language to have these discussions discussions and it took a lot of work to get there it was a lot of trial and error but what we found eventually was there was a way of talking about things that allowed us to to get to get over these these stumbling blocks that people tend to fall into so that we could get to a productive conversation and you know just as an example like often in political arguments we can phrase things in a way that puts the other person on a def- on the defensive and That happens because whatever whatever we're saying is is kind of loaded with this implicit moral assumption so you know one one thing i'm sure ben you've you've gotten as as someone who kind of skews conservative is this question of like well do you support donald trump or not and when, when you hear that from someone on the left, it, it feels like it's loaded with this implicit assumption that if you say yes, like there's something morally wrong with you. And so you know you're already put in the position of like, I mean, i'm I'm already in a binary, however I answer this, like i'm have, I'm gonna have to defend myself. And that's not really conducive to a good conversation. And Chris and I learned over time to to not phrase, questions in that way that that seem to be loaded with an implicit assumption or or put the other person into a box or a bind where they're forced to defend something that doesn't fully reflect their own values like chris and i are you know we're, we're our own individuals we don't we don't have to speak for our parties we don't have to speak for other personalities we just want to speak for ourselves and what we believe and by by coming into conversations willing to listen to be humble to ask questions to draw out kind of personal experiences and and um, deeper values, it allowed us to get around that, that kind of engagement where it feels like, you know, line drawing or loyalty tests or, or just ways of, of, you know, separating me from you. If, if, if you disagree with me on policy.
0: Yeah, I love that. And you know, that ties really well with, uh, there's, there's three rules that I tend to lay out whenever I'm about to facilitate a hard conversation. And I think based on what you guys just said, I want to add two to them. So the three that I tend to say is one assume good intentions Two, have a curiosity-based mindset. And three, make room for others. But what I heard that I'm now going to add to my list is be willing to learn and listen and not be there to win and also be willing to come back to the table. And I, I love that latter one especially because, you know, when you've had a hard conversation and you leave kind of shaken or sweating or like what just happened, you know, the first step really is confronting your fear and being willing to show up the next day and get in the car with that person. So I love those those things you just added to my toolbox. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I know personally, like I'm I'm a very prideful person. Um, I don't I don't like being wrong. And often when Chris and I would have these arguments early on, you know, he would he's he's incredibly smart. And so like he would say things that, uh, like frankly, just you know destroyed my argument or. Uh, revealed this huge blind spot I had, and there's something embarrassing about that. And you know, if if we weren't in the car together, I, I probably would have you know not wanted to engage again because embarrassment is 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 hard to come back from. But um, uh, confronting it, just as you said, is 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 where we build kind of uh, the the foundations to keep having those harder conversations and to get over being embarrassed. Because you know, at the end of the day, Chris and I. Uh, you know, we have a much deeper friendship and and we can't let kind of emotions like embarrassment or, or flights of anger get in the way of that
2: deeper thing. Yeah, can I, can I just say that's a two-way street, by the way. I, I went through the exact same emotions and the, the exact same embarrassments, uh, you know, as Ben, as you know, Jordan, Jordan knows his way around in an argument. And, uh, and, and one of the most beautiful parts of that is that once you get past it and you are able to embrace that maybe I wasn't right in that moment, or maybe I needed to think through it a little bit harder, uh, it opens up all of these new vistas of understanding and all these new ideas and, and these ways in which the world seems large and, and fascinating in new, and, and in totally new ways. And, and that's what makes you know, these conversations so powerful, I think. I mean, they can be difficult, they can be messy, um, but, but ultimately they're so rewarding as a result.
0: So I'm curious with the relationship you guys forged if there were any topics where you started to adopt the other person's views because of the intentionality of that person. And I know in my own life talking, you know, my friend Aaron, you know, he really came, led me to deeply understand the plight of African Americans and law enforcement in America and helped to convince me that, you know, police reform is likely something to pursue. And the flip side, I think my advocacy of free speech Really helped him appreciate how important and critical it was to dialogue, and he started to advocate some of those positions. Did you all find in your relationship that you've you know changed views because of the other person?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, so something we always say about the book is that, uh, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I don't think it'll come as a surprise to too many people. But you know, I'm still a Democrat, and Jordan's still a Republican. Um, but Shocking. we like to say that we've. I know, right? Crazy. Um, but we like to say that we have um, both made each other, you know, better Democrats and better Republicans. Um, and, and but that's not entirely the full story. I mean, there are absolutely issues that um, through conversation, we've started to sort of uh, sound like one another. So, you know, one example that comes to mind is, um, you know, our theories of, of social change. Uh, you know, I consider myself progressive, you know, I want things to change for the better and I want them to change now or yesterday. And and in conversation with Jordan, uh, I really started to sort of like hear his uh, argument for the importance of having a deliberative process, a process that allows um, every voice into the conversation, that uh, that respects the good in tradition, um, and you know he he would call it um, uh, Burkean, you know uh, after Edmund Burke, and you know I spent too many too many days in uh, uh, student newspaper newsrooms instead of in philosophy class, so he had to educate me on who that was, um, but you know that that's something that's really sort of critical to my worldview now, and. You know, we had this conversation in the context of changing a a college name at Yale, which um, used to be uh, Calhoun College, um, and then they've recently changed it. Um, And so in that, in the context of that conversation, we started talking about how it's important for alumni to have a voice, the professors to have a voice, students to certainly have a voice. Um, and in being heard, that creates a process where progress can, cha- can happen in a, in a very, um, you know, efficient manner, in a way that makes people feel like they have had a stake in it, um, that they, they could have decided their own future in some ways, even if they didn't exactly get their way. Um, and that was really important for me. And I, I take that going forward in not just that context, but, but most contexts. And, and that's something that, you know, we've, we, we talked long and, and, and hard about in, uh, in the Dakotas on one of our first trips.
1: Yeah, and no, I I think one one for me uh probably actually mirrors Ben what what you had with Aaron where uh Chris and my early conversations about things like police brutality and um and the experience of the black community in America with with community policing um uh I probably skewed uh way more on, onto the law enforcement side and a lot of our early fights centered around that um and over time I think I think Chris uh really helped uh, open up my understanding um, to parts of the country that are, are still deeply affected by the experience of of slavery and Jim Crow and how that has left scars that are still uh, with us today. And that that was really driven home when when we went to Tulsa uh, and we came across the Greenwood Memorial in um, uh, in Tulsa, which was the site of the 1921 race massacre. Um, and for for I, now, the story is more common. But at the time, uh, I had never even heard of this. You know, I, I'm an American history junkie, and I had never heard of this like really hor- horrific thing in American history um, because it was largely suppressed. It was never talked about. And um, you know, seeing that and having Chris kind of take me through the criminal justice system in Tulsa and then in Detroit, um, it, it really uh, was was a hard thing for me to see, but but changed my of the problems we face with criminal justice and and racial justice in the country.
0: So you've mentioned your your trip a couple of times. I'd love to transition there. Um, put us put us in your seats We're at the beginning of this. What was the context? What was the the vehicle you traveled in and what was your plan as you started this journey?
1: Yeah. So the the first trip was was just a lark. We had, we had no book in mind. We were just two friends on the road, and I had uh, inherited my my grandfather's beat up old Volvo S sixty, and so uh, we jumped in that car for the first trip, and we drove from New York to San Francisco, and we took the northern route. Uh, we went through Chicago, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, and that journey was beautiful. Uh, that that entire northern route is just really really uh, stunning and uh, that was in May 2016, we felt like there was something special to the road. And we were learning something about each other, about, our, about the country. And as Donald Trump took office and we headed into 2017, and the country just seemed to be coming apart at the seams, uh, we decided to get back on the road. And so in August 2017, we did our second road trip through the Southwest. And on that one, Our intent was to try to understand something about the country, we're gonna be intentional. And the first day we're heading towards Arizona and it turns out Donald Trump's uh, giving a rally there in Phoenix. So Chris decides that we should go there and I eagerly accepted, uh, much to probably Chris's ultimate uh, chagrin. And uh, we go to the rally, we go inside, we end up running around with protesters outside and tear gas gets shot off at some point in the night. And I think for Chris and I, what was important there was uh, we saw everything the same you know from our two different sides of the aisle we we were seeing the same set of facts, we were seeing everything the same way, um, and that was really heartening and at the same time, we were also dismayed by what we saw uh, We felt like um, under the glare of the camera lights and the political stage that everybody was sort of performing. Like there was nothing real here. Like whether it was the Trump supporters or the Trump protesters or Antifa or white supremacist groups, they were all there to, to be in front of the cameras. And that's not really who we are. That's, that's, uh, that's a performance. And so coming out of that experience, we decided we were going to get away from politics. And so the rest of our road trips, we ended up doing three more after that. Uh, the rest of our road trips were all this effort to go meet Americans in parts of life far away from politics where we thought we'd be able to find these deeper values. Um, Chris, do you, do you want to talk through the other three trips quickly?
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, from there, we we sort of uh, uh, plastered the, the country once again. I mean, we did one trip um, from it, the, our only trip without the boat uh, from Las Vegas to Slidell, Louisiana in the cab of a long haul truck. Uh, we, we found this man, Pete Milan, who had been on the road for 40 years and done 3 million million miles by the time we met him, which put our uh, nearly 20,000 miles over the course of these six road trips to to shame. Um, And yeah, and then we got back in the boat a few months later and, uh, you know, went out to Detroit, where we spent time with a Shakespeare troop uh, at Cornell Prison, uh, where they're putting on King Lear. Uh, we spent time on a uh, lobster boat off the coast of Portland, Maine, with a guy named Willis who had been lobstering for many, many years. Uh, Tulsa, where we um, uh, spent a few days at Women in Recovery, which is a drug diversion program for women and especially mothers, and 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 a few other stories. And uh, you know, I think our, our second second last trip, we were on the road for five weeks. Um, so the, the, these trips became a commitment. You know, we really we really lived this uh, for a few years here and. Uh, you know, you, you learn how to survive on the road and you learn which motel chains are better than others and, you know, to, to choose almonds instead of chips on the by, you know, week four and, uh, but it was really enriching and, and, and being able to sort of focus on the stories of Americans engaged in um, work and life outside of the, you know, the glare of politics, as, as Jordan so eloquently put it, um, was just really powerful. And it gave us a new lo- way to look at the country that was was enriching and, and very hopeful, to be per- perfectly honest.
0: Oh, I'm fascinated by the experience with the long haul trucker. You know, trucking, as you all know, is probably the most prevalent job in America. You look at some of these maps with, you know, percentage of people employed and, you know, truckers make up a significant portion Compare that to say Yale law school, which is a very small elite class going to very different professions. (laughs) So what did you guys see and experience when you were on the road with this guy?
2: Yeah, Pete, Pete was a, was a special guy. Um, You know, we, so yeah, we left from Las Vegas. Uh, We found Pete, uh, first of all, because uh, we found out this author who had written a book about his life as a trucker, um, we reached out to him and said, "Hey, would you take us around?" He said, "Well, you know, I'm not doing that anymore, but I'll, I'll find you someone." Um, and that's how we we found Pete. He said, "You know, we, we found your guy." And and uh, we chatted with Pete for for an hour over the phone, and um, you know, he was so boisterous and eloquent in some ways, and kind of raw in others. You know, you, you you call him and and his ringback tone is this like blaring country music song. And, uh, you know, he, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, you, don't, you won't have enough paper to, to, to take down all my thoughts, or, you, you know, you, there's not enough paper in all the world or something along those lines. And so we decided this is our guy. And so we flew to Las Vegas in December to meet up with him. Um, and, you, you know, mind you, this was our first trip trying to get away from politics. Uh, so we, we go to Morton's truck stop. We we show up. We're looking around, and you know this one truck honks his horn and jumps down. Pete uh, it, Pete jumps down from from the truck and greets us, and he's wearing this "Make America Great Again" shirt. And so my first thought was, well, you know, of course, we're, apparently it's impossible to get away from politics in this day and age. Um, and we got in the car. We got in the truck, nonetheless, and and started you know uh, rumbling south and. You know, what was amazing was, um, you know, A, how hard this man works. I mean, he's on the road pretty much every day of the month, except for maybe a few um, where he gets to be home in Florida, um, but also just how, how sort of iconoclastic he was. Um, you know, we talked about everything, but when we finally got to politics, uh, we asked him about the president, and he said, you know what? I really wish the president talked more about climate change. And he went on to talk about, you know, how his faith led him to believe that God is love and therefore he is, you know, supportive of L- LGBTQ marriage in a, in a way that he uh you know didn't used to feel, but but he came to that through through scripture and you know, just all of these like very complicated, interesting ways of of thinking about politics that you know you you never could have sort of surmised just from looking at you know, this big guy with tattoos on his forearms and a, and a big old red, you know, Make America Great Again shirt and, you know, smoking two packs of Paul Malls a day. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really formative for, for that reason alone um, that, you know, here's this guy who could think entirely different than us um, and present entirely different, but, but also have as nuanced a, a vision of politics as, as either Jordan or I.
0: Yeah, what's interesting to me about that, and this kind of gets to the heart of where I've struggled in the, in the recent moment, is you know, I certainly uh, align with one side of the aisle more than the other, and those who listen here and know me well know this, but it's, to your point earlier about this performative experience on the left or the right, if you're not 100% one way or 100% another, you're an outcast, and yet 95 plus percent of Americans could be outcasts from one part or the other because they have these nuanced views. And that immediate view that someone might have is of me as a, as a white male living in, you know, the good part of Dallas with a, a city corporate job, you know, there's probably assumptions about what I might believe, but in many cases, they're wrong because I've seen things. And as you went through America, how, how frequent was that with the folks that you guys met, like like your truck driver friend?
1: Yeah, I, I think we were constantly surprised by by people's nuanced views. And um, you know, especially after our time with Pete, you know, we, we, were, we were actively kind of approaching things with a sense of humility. And even then, the, the views across the country were um, were just more varied and complex than we could have imagined. And it was everything from you know, a one-time undocumented immigrant in Nevada saying that you know, she had no care for Donald Trump because she had more important things to do, like take care of her grandkids and try to sell her house in Las Vegas that was still on the market. And you know, just, she was caught up with the more mundane things of life, um, to a former uh, uh, inmate uh, from a woman's prison in Detroit who had been in prison for 40 years and was a Donald Trump supporter. And um, it was just kind of on and on. And uh, what we found was that everybody's beliefs and uh, views were informed by their life experiences and, and values that had been inculcated somewhere or the other over the course of their life. And you know, everybody had uh, this richness to them that you just can't capture by pointing to things like party identification or who, which politician you support. And so that that was a huge lesson to us that underneath the parties, there's this incredible nuance and variety uh, that just just gets washed out in kind of the the very simplistic narrative we have about polarization.
2: Yeah, I I would just I would just echo everything Jordan just said. It's 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 fun listening to <laughs> to your partner on the road of, of, of four years. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's it's just amazing how diverse, how complex this country is. Um, and it's so easy to miss that, you know, especially if you're if you're just you know staying in New Haven and not leaving or or where I am now in Berkeley for the for the pandemic. If you don't go out there and see it for yourself, um, you, you'll never believe it because it's just it's just so rich out there. It really is.
0: I'd be curious, given what you guys saw, you know, the pandemic has definitely changed our lived experience, you know, the political environment the past six months has certainly been fraught, but I would, I would posit that the presidential race, which is now less than hundred days away to some extent, has been less on people's minds. There's no conventions, there's no barnstorming, you know, the president's method of going into large venues and, you know, getting the crowd riled up is different. Do you feel like the temperature is different in 2020 than it was in 2016, or is it just in a different direction?
1: Well, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious what Chris thinks, but I, <laughs> I think my view is is that it, it is it is in a very different direction, and while it's it's not as, like, raucous, um, it is almost potentially more insidious. And I guess what I mean by that is, I mean, 2016 was wild. Like, it's almost crazy to think back to it. But, you know, at this point, uh, uh, James Comey had just come out and, and sort of exonerated Hillary Clinton, but then attacked her for, for uh, you know, mal- uh, basically not quite, he didn't use the word gross negligence, but essentially that, you know, half the country thought she should be in jail. The other half thought Donald Trump was this Kind of racist, authoritarian, heading towards the office, and um, you know it was just all loud and vicious, and uh, the debates were were um, just this crazy experience, and so you know it, it was it was it was wild, um, and yet I don't think there was much of a feeling that the day after the election um, uh, that that we we wouldn't know what was coming. And what I feel today is that there's just this deep uncertainty across the country that everything is up in the air for the first time in our lives. Like we don't know if we'll know who the president is on November 4th. And that might go on for months because, you know, we don't even know if we can vote in a systematic kind of accountable way. Um, We don't know if the president will give up the office. We don't know if Joe Biden will even make it to the presidency. You know, there, there are so, so many unknowns right now and, I just get the sense there's this, this feeling of, of like, not just uncertainty, but, but almost, um, what's the right word for it? It's, it's like a, um, like a a dark feeling about what's coming. And, and I just, I kind of sense that across
2: the country. Yeah, I would, I, you know, I actually agree with Jordan on this, Um, you know, despite the preface. um, I, I think it's, I'm I'm scared, you know, I I have no idea what to expect. I think that the temperature is um, high, but it's just, it's just entirely channeled through social media now. And um, I I feel like our media, um, especially on television, is taking its cues from social. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting to look at these elections as like, as every four years getting a little snapshot of where we are, technologically, um, on the media front, uh, as a nation, and, um, it, you know i i, I miss I, I i miss the rallies you know i miss uh i miss the ability to have both sides get out and 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 talk um about their visions um I, it feels it feels like all we have left from 2016 is the is the anger and the and the division um and it 's just impossible to break through with anything but that um and that's and that 's a little scary but yeah i mean I, yeah it's it's it 's really hard to see how complex and, and almost apocalyptic things are feeling in our politics right now, especially when we have gone out and we, you know, we honestly believe in this message of hope. Um, and it's just in this context, in this political environment, in this media environment, it's really hard to, to put that message out there and be listened to because, you know, the, that, that vision uh, um, sort of making that I was talking about is, is no longer here. And there just isn't the sort of like time and, and uh, sort of deep breath <laughs> thinking and conversation that goes on to sort of say, okay, what's going on in a larger sense? Like, how can we connect this to history? Like, where are we actually headed? It feels like everyone is just in, in this like kind of immediate, um, you know, 24 hour or if not less uh, uh, media cycle or news cycle. Um, ben, I'm, I'm actually curious what, what you would say about it.
0: Yeah, I think I, I agree with, with both of y'all in the general sentiment. I mean, I do feel, I do sense a darkness on the horizon and, you know, even though if the president were to be reelected, policy-wise, I would, I would be happy with the outcomes that would come from that, the stress that it would put on our country would be just immense. And, you know, from my perspective, if, you know, uh, Vice President Biden was elected, I know what it felt like when Obama was elected from the standpoint of like, okay, now all these policies that I deeply care about may not be in action. It's going to be four or eight more years of kind of wandering in the wilderness until we find somebody. Um, but what's interesting to me is, is the conversation on like lowering the temperature and, you know, Chris, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking, how do how do you, how do we take what you guys have built and scale this? And one of the things that, uh, I love about Paul Graham, who's the founder of Combinator, he has this adage of like, when you're doing a startup, do things that don't scale. And, you know, I see the relationship you all have built. I see the relationship, some relationships I've, I've been able to build with people across the aisle. I mean, it's hard work, it takes a lot of time. It doesn't scale, but in many ways, those are the most fruitful and unifying things we can do. And so, you know, the question that remains in my mind is in an age where we all wanna get, you know, the 10,000 Twitter retweets and likes because of something pithy we said, some emotional outburst we have with true passion, but it doesn't actually advance conversation or build relationships how do you navigate that very real human need to want to be noticed and stand out from the crowd while doing the hard work of, of showing up time and again, when, when you get hit in the face by your friend, like, I don't, I just don't know. That's, that's a tough thing to navigate. And I'm curious, like, how do you guys think you can scale what you've done?
1: Yeah, that, uh, uh I, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I, I, you're exactly right. Like I, I think, um, the the question of scale is is really hard with this, and I wish there was a silver bullet that we could offer people that said, you know, just do X and everything will be great. Or if we put in policy Y, like this will all go away. And I, I just don't think that's true. I, I think in the end, um, every American has to kind of take it on themselves to to do individual actions that make things better. And the book is actually very hopeful. We left with the road with a hopeful. Uh, message for the country, which was, you know, everywhere we went, we saw hard problems. We saw deep structural issues with the country, but we also saw incredible people on the ground who are willing to do the hard work to solve them. And so in Tulsa, we met this woman, Mimi, who's at a, she, she's the one who runs the drug diversion program. And, you know, she's the one who deals with women in addiction and the criminal justice system day in and day out. And yet, she keeps working hard because she believes she can make it better. And it's not going to be in one year. It might not even be in twenty years. But she believes she will make it better. Um, and we saw that over and over and over again across the country. And if the people closest to the problems were hopeful because they were taking action, they were doing something to to solve it. You know, how could we not be hopeful uh, walking away from them? And um, you know, that in the end, to us is 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 the silver lining of all this, which is you know. There are good people across this country, almost everyone we met, um, who is tired of the partisanship. They're tired of the division. They don't like that. You know, it feels like the media and our politicians are constantly seeking to divide us. They're tired of of not seeing any progress on hard issues. And that latent desire for, for something better is there. And now it just takes Americans adjusting their own behavior. Um, and it doesn't scale, but if everyone does it, then it, then it can be um, momentous and, and bring us back where we need to go. And, um, you know, on, on the final point about uh, social media and, and what Chris and I are doing ourselves, I, I actually read a tweet today uh, by some, some Silicon Valley guy who has a huge, huge following on Twitter. And the, the quote was something like, you know, why does anyone write books anymore? And his point was, you know, with one tweet, he's going to reach a million people, and Chris and I will be lucky if we sell, you know, a couple thousand copies of this book, and and so you know, three years of work into something that'll reach three thousand people versus one tweet that'll reach a million, um, you know, highlights this this big difference, and and yet, as I thought about it, the important thing about this book is that it captures stories of people who, we hope, when someone reads that reads it, it like really changes their mind about who we are as Americans and, and what is possible in this country and the goodness of of people out there who, who might be different from you, but but they really have something to offer. And you can't get that in a tweet. You can't get that in a 30-second segment on CNN or Fox. And so the, the method for Chris and I is just to keep telling these stories and try, try to show people that the American people um, are rich, they're complex, they're they're doers who are all trying to solve problems and that is reason to hope going forward.
2: Yeah. Jordan, Jordan about covered it. Um, you know, I would just underline the point about stories uh, and just say that, you know, humans are designed for stories. I mean, the, the concept of scale I think comes from stories, you know, that, that's how we uh, perpetuate knowledge. It's how we um, you know, it's it, it, from generation to generation. It's how we, it's how we, uh, uh, come to new knowledge and uh, in conversation. Um, as a speechwriter, we would be often surprised, even though we, we knew it in our heart of hearts that um, what really resonated in a speech was always the stories. It was never the policy. It was it was never you know the the the, the sort of like hard argument. It was always the the anecdote. Or you know the historical, um, you know the the poetry or or the the personal story. I mean it, it, that stuff um, really moves people. Um, and so yeah, so you know that's partially why we put it down in a book. And and Jordan makes a really good point about you know how many people we're gonna we're gonna um, uh, reach. But like books still do reach millions of people if, if you if you hit the right note and you get a little lucky. Um, and I think that's just a testament to the fact that we do love stories and we love certain mediums and we're we're able to take in much more complicated information when it's a really well-told story. Um, and so, yeah, we might, we might not reach a million people like that Silicon Valley uh, tweeter, but, uh, but someone will. And it's about trying to find that perfect formula to, to get that story out there that's gonna sort of take the temperature down. It's gonna tell a different story about America. that's gonna allow us to reconcile our differences and make progress and, and compromise and negotiate and, and create a more perfect union. And I think that's a really hard thing.
0: Um, but it's all about, I mean, that's what, that's the job. (laughs) I mean, I think that's spot on Um, and love that you were a speechwriter. I was as well. And I think that story element is critical to connecting with your audience and building that rapport. You know, I remember back when I was 16, 17, 18 gung-ho about politics and I was just aghast that I think it was either, you know, President Clinton or President Bush at the time in their state of the union, they kept talking about stories. And I'm like, I just want facts and numbers. Like, just throw out this stat that 67% of X does this. And like all the people will be convinced. And it's taken me 20 years to realize that that actually doesn't work for all the, all the things that you mentioned, Chris. And so I'm curious, like how do you get the narrative and those stories into the public consciousness? And I, you know, I think an archetype uh, is, you know, how the, the marriage equality movement won one what they wanted you know it was building relationships with their next door neighbors and through stories saying i'm just like you why should you why should you treat me differently and it wasn't the numbers and the stats and even like the religious ideology it was that personal relationship on the story i know this person who is a good person i saw him help me out so therefore i'm going to give him the benefit of that when it comes to his relationship and all of a sudden you know the, the public shifts within 10 years to fully support something that you know in the early 90s would have been unfathomable um so, like, how do you get these stories out in the public consciousness when there's so many other things competing for our attention?
2: That's the that's the trillion dollar question, right? I mean that that's what it's all about um, figuring out how that works. I mean, you know, I, I would like to think that it's it's incremental, right? That that we're you know, it, as long as there's good people working on telling these stories, eventually someone's going to break through. It's just the it's just the you know the rule of large numbers. Um, but, you know, I think there's something there's something more to it. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm hopeful because stories like that have broken through. I mean, whether it's like, you know, Profiles and Courage or it feels like every great political speech has, a, has uplift in it, even though that medium is kind of uh, shackled at the moment. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how to do it. But I, what I would say, though, is that we found that people's voices from outside of the mainstream are really powerful. And, you know, what Pete said in five minutes could um, be far more, far more, um, it would resonate far more than, you know, four hours of Jordan and I, you know, uh, negotiating or debating a topic. Um, there's something about getting unvarnished uh, opinions from people who are not professional politicians about like what they believe makes america good or what they believe you know america needs to do in order to move forward to make things more equal for people to to deal with our our racial our our difficult racial history um, there's something about that, and, and that might just be the journalist in me speaking more than the the speechwriter speaking. But you know, bringing those voices to the fore um, always seems to to be more powerful than, say, you know, a well crafted argument, which goes back to the whole idea of story. But but it's about going out there and finding those people. But Jordan, I mean, you're 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 pretty good at scale and, and breaking through. What do you what do you think on this?
1: Yeah, I, I I am struck by how many people we've talked to, and this is totally anecdotal, but. So many people have told us variants of, I'm so excited about your book because my brother, my sister, my daughter, my parent is from the other side and we just can't seem to talk. And uh, in, a, in a way it does kind of mirror the, the, uh, the LGBT movement where it, it was this effort to get people to, to come out and say, you know, I have a family member and they're a good person and they should be accepted like everyone else. And I I think there there might almost be this similar phenomenon now on the political side. And uh, I think that that does provide the basis for a broader awakening. Um, I think preference falsification has gone through the roof. And uh, there almost is just a need for people to come out and say proudly whatever party they're from or whatever... political affiliation they hold um, and it, it's got to be made something that's that's kind of cool to do and and uh, important to be tolerant and you know maybe it's gonna require uh, some big influencers to get in the game uh, to do it I think Chris and I always had this grand vision of Shell Obama and uh, George W Bush like writing forward for our book but you know it really might take people like that kind of locking arms and saying hey we might we might disagree on policy but you know we love each other and uh, getting that that's spread across the country.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about those two, it seems like George W., even in his own party, has kind of been cast aside. And to some extent, the Obamas on the left, while still revered, are almost viewed as, you know, they're not liberal enough in some instances. So I wonder how you, the people that we hold up as exemplars of this, and maybe this is a question best directed at Chris is, you know, as you think about your background as a journalist, what is the role of media in shaping the narrative and telling the stories? Because it seems like the, the current model and it's profit driven, as you can have a debate on that, is to get clicks. And I think as we all know, if it bleeds, it leads. You want bad news stories. You want things that grab people's immediate attention. And you lose the nuance and the deep, intense stories. So what role does the media play in helping to um, reveal this preference falsification or the things that might be missed in the broader hits of the conversation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the media plays an enormous role in
2: that. I mean, in many ways they, they set the table and, and, and they drive the story. And I I think that they are at the heart of, uh, we are at the heart, um, of that problem. And, and look, look, you know, I, when Jordan and I started these, uh, these road trips, I was pretty defensive about the media, you know, I, I, I had grown up um, idolizing Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. That was my phone background for years. Um, I really truly believe in, in great sort of, uh, um, you know, the, just just reporting, like the, the, the guys and gals who go out there and just do it, you know, have an empty notebook and, and try to tell the story as best they can. Um, but I, I'm seeing the, you know, the fissures and the issues and the crises in journalism right now. Um, I think a big part of it is medium, you know I think cable news uh, the competition is so intense um, for for viewers um, and for advertising dollars that um, there 's just this mad dash for the extremes. Uh, I think that 's really problematic um, and i don 't think there is a um, as much quality uh, counterweight going on at the moment. Um, you know One thing I will say in media 's defense is it 's very hard to, um, to to report properly to uh, think deeply to hire the best when uh, you've you've just been sort of hollowed out um, when there are no resources left over um, because then you then you really have no choice but to sort of like hunt for clicks and mm-hmm. and and sort of abide by these principles of advertising dollars that that get us in so much trouble but you know that's not to say that they there <laughs> the media doesn't have to sort of think hard about how we can double down on the values uh, that got us you know into the golden age of journalism but also how to adapt to this new era and how to deal with you know Trump's rhetoric, and also new voices in the media, and also you know the the various like uh, uh, economic and technological um, necessities and and uh, consequences of this of this twenty first century. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that needs to change, um, but I think mainly it has to do with doubling down on what made journalism amazing for much of the 20th century. Uh, of course, there was downsides, which Jordan absolutely reminded me of <laughs> not that long ago, um, but there was also this like beautiful golden thread through so many, um, so many of these reporting vehicles for so long. Um, but I know Jordan has some thoughts on the media as well.
0: <laughs> I, I think you covered most of it. Oh, a chord in the room. I love it. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, on that note, I kind of want to make a somewhat of a hard shift as we kind of come to the end of the conversation, which again, I'm deeply grateful for. And I've loved engaging with y'all. But what's it like to do a book tour in the age of COVID when you can't actually go to bookstores and (laughs) sign these books and have the lauding crowds just love your work? What's it been like for y'all?
1: So you know, we we were thrown for a huge loop. This this book was meant to come out May fifth. We were like all geared up for it, and hit the road in advance, and and uh, you know come out with an article right before about what the country looks like today. And uh, we had this great spot that was going to get filmed for CBS this morning, and then you know May hits, and everything goes away. And Amazon even tells all the publishers. We're deprioritizing books. Like, do not publish a book right now. And so uh, we we shifted the date. And um, you know, our, our dreams of getting to drive from town to town and talk at bookstores is, has definitely not not been realized. But on the other hand, we we've gotten to talk to so many interesting people. The the bookstores, especially small bookstores, have really um, done a fantastic job switching to virtual. And what we found is that there might even be more. Reaches and it, it it still preserves some of the intimacy. Uh, um, having these small book talks with you know twenty, thirty people, uh, and without having to travel, you can do them you know all day. And so uh, I think Chris and I have actually had a lot of fun having conversations across the country. You know, this morning uh, we were uh, in San Francisco with Bookworks, and then uh, our sorry Book Passage. Today we're or tonight we're with you in, in Dallas. Uh, before that, we were in Leland, Michigan, and all in one day. And so it, it, there is something
2: really fun about it. Chris, what what would you add? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly it feels like we're on like uh, on the, either the cutting edge or or just you know some sort of weird bizarre world. But it it has been actually a lot of fun. And you know, you really never know what you're gonna get. Um, you know, sometimes you'll you'll zoom into you know a a, um, a book talk and there'll be like four people there and two of them are your moms. And, uh, and, and you have a nice little conversation and you sign off and then you go to the next one and there'll be 900 people there. Hmm. It's, it's really fascinating because, you know, like I, I imagine that when we, if we were to hit the road and be there in person, um, I don't. I think we would have pulled an audience bigger than like 30 or 40 any one night right um but now like potentially we're we're reaching thousands of people some nights and then four the next you know and it, it, it's really it's really interesting and 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 when you when you sort of let go <laughs> of of the world in which that of which you dreamed of you know a few months ago it, it can actually be a ton of fun And. Then, uh, you know, d- dealing with um, dealing with Zoom links and you know coordinating everything, and you know we just did a talk where we actually had Pete on, and we had Franny on, and we had Mimi come in, and it was all it was all produced, and you know they're all of course all over the country, like you know calling in from either the cab of their truck or or their office space in Tulsa, and I don't know, there's some, just something really magical about being able to to do all that. So uh, again, trying to find the the silver lining has been has been what's kept us going.
0: That's great. Well, one final question. Uh, What's next for y'all? That's a good question.
2: I want to hear what Jordan's doing next.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so for me, I I, I worked for uh, Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO for my day job at this new company called Schmidt Futures uh, that tries to use technology to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Uh, I've been having a blast doing that. And I think I'll probably take... A lot of those insights and, and try to start my own company soon uh in the next uh six to nine months uh so that that's what's i think that's what's up next for me
2: and i'm a i'm a writer you know so that's what i'm going to be doing i'm going to be going out trying to try to tell stories and trying to trying to come along for for the ride
0: uh at least one more time maybe two <laughs> i love it well, Jordan and Chris, this has been a, a deeply fascinating conversation. Thank you for the work you all put in to drive across the country to write this book. And uh, I hope many of our listeners read it and take the lessons to heart. Uh, good luck with the rest of your virtual book tour. And Jordan, I look forward to seeing what's uh, on the offering for your startup and thinking change the world as long as, alongside Chris's stories.
1: Well, Ben, thanks so much. This, this was so much fun chatting with you. We, we really
0: appreciate uh, the chance to do so. It's great, man. Thank you. Have a good night, y'all. This has been another edition of a Random Walk with Ben Coleman.